Let us turn in our copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, looking at verse 10 this evening, we'll read from verse 8 for context. Let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking for his blessing. O great God of heaven, open now our eyes to behold the glory of our risen and ascended Christ, the only Savior of sinners, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Last time we focused on the fullness of deity that dwells in Jesus Christ, as we saw it there in verse 9. We made the point from John chapter 1, that that fullness has to do specifically with the accomplishment of redemption in Christ's death and resurrection. What was promised and foresignified in the Old Testament has now come to fulfillment in Christ's finished work. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We briefly looked at how the fullness of deity dwelling in Jesus Christ is a rich reference to the presence of God dwelling in his temple. This rich imagery shows that Jesus Christ has brought all who trust in him into the very presence of God. There's nothing we need to supplement to get us closer to God. As we have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, we have full access to God's throne room. Even though we do not see him, we have been brought near to him, and when we do see him, that will simply be the open unveiling of what is already ours in Christ right now. We want to focus this evening more on the fullness of grace in Christ and his exalted authority as that fullness. So we see, first of all, the church's fullness in the beginning of verse 10, the church's fullness, where Paul says, and you have been filled in him. Notice how we move from Christ right to the church from verses 9 to 10. The fullness of grace that is in Jesus Christ is for his church, for the Christian. The fullness of grace in Christ has filled his people. I mentioned briefly last time that the grammar here is challenging, but it shows us something glorious. You have been filled points to something that began in the past and has brought about a new state of being. So we could paraphrase, you, church of the Lord Jesus, are this. You are now this, in this state continually. It is ongoing. This is now true of you. You now possess these gifts and these characteristics. 
This is something that is true of you that you had nothing to do with. You, the church, are the recipient of the action. It was done to you. You did not do it to yourself or for yourself. You were acted upon. You did not act. And all this simply reinforces what we saw last time. The fullness of deity in Jesus Christ is in particular the fullness of divine grace. All of God's promises have been fulfilled. All of your sins have been paid for. Newness of life has been achieved. The kingdom has begun. And all of this, all of this fullness of grace, dear Christian, is for you. You have been filled in him. All that he has achieved is yours. The grace upon grace that has come in Jesus Christ is grace upon grace for you. You are now in a new condition of constant access to all of Christ and to all of his benefits. But where? Where does the filling of this saving fullness come? It is not a where, it is a who. It is, verse 10, in him in Christ, that you have all access to all saving fullness of God's grace. But even that is not quite the right way to put it. Rather, it is in Christ that you have been filled, now and always, with all saving fullness of God's grace. We need to keep saying this because we keep forgetting it, and we fail to see the significance of it. The branch, in and of itself and on its own, is lifeless and empty. But the branch in contact with the vine, in the vine, abiding in the vine, living and staying and persisting in and taking up residence in the vine, the branch in the vine has more than enough fullness of life. The words of Christ himself to us in John 15, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you aware of your nothing, believer? Have you lost sight of Christ? Have you been living under the delusion that you must go elsewhere because Christ has some but not all of what you need? Have you been gnawing at the dry husks of the swine trough? Have you been trying to drink from broken, empty cisterns that hold no water? Then come again to Jesus Christ, the fountain of living waters. Come and see afresh the wonderful storehouse of all manner of grace in him. Do not live as an orphan when you are a child of God. Do not live in empty deceit when you have the fullness of divine grace in Jesus Christ. These words, in him, don't miss the personal nature of this union with Jesus Christ. Listen to how Herman Bovink describes our union with Christ. This is from his wonderful works of God, also known as our reasonable faith. Bovink says this, Christ is the head of every believer, of every local congregation, and also of the church as a whole. Christ lives and dwells in all believers, and they live, move, and have their being in Christ. Christ is their life. The combination in Christ, in the Lord, in him, this combination we see here in in Colossians 2, occurs more than 150 times in the New Testament. It indicates 
that Christ is the constant source, not only of the spiritual life, but that as such, he also immediately and directly dwells in the believer. The unity is as close as that between a cornerstone and a temple, a man and a woman, the head and the body, the vine and the branch. The believers are in Christ as all things by virtue of creation and providence are in God. They live in him as the fish lives in water, the bird in the air, the man in his vocation, the scholar in his study. Together with him, they are crucified, dead and buried, are raised again, seated at the right hand of God, and glorified. They have put him on, have assumed his form, and they show in their body both the suffering and the life of Christ and are fulfilled in him. In short, Christ is all and in all. So believer, he is the source of life. He is the fullness of all grace. He is the all-sufficient one who needs no supplement of ours. Listen to how Gerhardus Voss explains that more important than any benefit of salvation is the benefactor of salvation, Jesus Christ. It is when you receive Christ that you receive all that is in Christ. Voss says, One is first united to Christ, the mediator of the covenant, by a mystical union which finds its conscious recognition in faith. By this union with Christ, all that is in Christ is simultaneously given. Faith embraces all of this too. It not only grasps justification, but lays hold of Christ as prophet, priest, and king as his rich and full Messiah. How desperately we need to taste and see Jesus Christ as the rich and full Messiah that he is. Think more about that. What does it mean, believer, that Jesus Christ is the fullness, the rich and full Savior for you? Just to mention a few things. It means he is the fullness of justifying grace. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So that points up that there is more righteousness in Christ for you than there is guilt in you. Double the grace, double the comfort. Romans 5.17 For if because of one man's Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Did you hear that principle in Romans 5 there? Get this principle in your mind, commit it to memory, the much more principle. How much more? All the more. If I am a miserable sinner, if I am a miserable and brokenhearted sufferer, How much more will the fullness of grace in Jesus Christ more than make up for all my iniquity and all my affliction? It also means that Jesus Christ is the fullness of comforting grace. Think of Psalm 63, when David prays in the lifeless wilderness, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help 
and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. And so as Christ in his ascension into heaven has brought us into God's very presence, we are nourished by his life-giving grace even in the midst of this dry and weary land where there is no water. It also means that Jesus Christ is the fullness of enduring grace. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Think of how profoundly Christ was wronged and mistreated. Think of how he went through all of that alone. But now that he has gone ahead of us, as we look to him, we do not experience the miseries of this life alone, but with him. And we can with him endure, endure all those things by his life-giving power. And so, believer, the fullness of divine grace which dwells in Jesus Christ dwells in him continually. Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, is the incessant and ever-flowing fountain of all grace for all who take hold of him. And what we see here in verse 10 is that this fullness of grace has filled the church. So, dear believer, all that is in Christ is for you. All his benefits benefit you. They are your benefits. Apart from him, you have nothing, but in him, you have more than all. It leads us to, secondly, and more fully, Christ's full authority. In the second half of verse 10, Christ's full authority. Where Paul says, second half of verse 10, who is the head of all rule and authority. So notice how in verses 9 and 10, we've gone from Christ to the church, and now back to Christ again. The fullness of divine grace that is in Christ now fills his kingdom, worshipers from all ages and from all nations. And at the end of verse 10, as our attention is taken back to Christ, we see more specifically who has filled the church. In particular, the Christ who possesses the fullness of saving grace the Christ who has filled us with that grace in union with him, this Christ is furthermore the head of all rule and authority. Why is this significant? Why, what are the rule and authority over which Jesus Christ is head? In a nutshell, rule and authority is a reference to evil spiritual forces. The fact that Jesus Christ is head even over the demonic shows us even more how glorious his headship is. Let's look at how these evil spiritual forces show up in Colossians and also make reference to how they show up in, in the similar book of Ephesians so that we can appreciate the authority of our Savior even over the invisible evil forces. Go back to, to chapter 1 and verse 13 where we saw Chapter 1, verse 13, he, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain or the authority, same word in Colossians 2.10, the authority or domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice how that fills out and describes part of our fallen condition prior to conversion. Part of our need for Christ, part of our need for redemption was that we in our sin in this present evil age were under the tyranny of the evil one and all his host. The devil is the one who has the power of death, Hebrews 2, and we were dead in our sins and subject to death. The devil is the father of lies, John chapter 8, and we were living in hatred of God's revealed truth. Our lives were motivated by our own selfishness, looking for happiness in the creation, not the creator. And all of this was pleasing to the evil one. But praise God, he got us out of that domain, out of that authority of darkness. He brought us into the marvelous light of Christ's kingdom, and we now have a radically new relationship to all of our spiritual enemies. Moving on to chapter 1, verse 16. Speaking about Christ's authority prior to his earthly ministry, chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, same thing we see in Colossians 2.10, all things were created through him and for him. We see here that Christ has authority over all invisible spiritual forces in part because he created them. Now, let's not misunderstand. Christ did not create the angels evil. They became evil by rebelling against him. In the beginning, God created heaven. Heaven was his majestic throne room, which he populated with innumerable angels to worship him incessantly, as we see in that vision of the heavenly temple in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels constantly sing. This heavenly throne room was filled with countless angels to worship him incessantly and to be the privileged attendants of his royal courts. And yet one angel was filled with wicked pride. Instead of delighting to be a humble servant and worshiper of the great king, this one angel wanted to be worshiped as king himself. He became guilty of treason against the one true God and was cast out of the heavenly sanctuary down to earth. And it was upon the earth that this one, this one evil one tempted Adam and Eve to follow him and imitate him in prideful rebellion and self-assertion over against the creator who is blessed forever. And so every time you and I assert ourselves in pride, every time we seek our happiness in ourselves and not in the one true God, we are following in the footsteps of the devil himself. Now at this point, maybe some are thinking, what in the world are you talking about? You can read more about the sin and fall of the angels in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, 2 Peter 2, Jude 6, the explanation of these things in the larger catechism, Bavink and others. But the point here is easy. No spiritual angelic being presents a threat to Jesus Christ because he created them. And even though they have fallen from him, even though they are now servants of Satan, 
they still present no threat to Jesus Christ. He is head over them. That is what's so amazing about our passage now, Colossians 2.10. Jesus Christ is head even over the evil spiritual forces. The language of Christ being head is, is a rich, rich terminology. It is a rich comfort for those in union with him. Think back even before Christ's death and resurrection. Remember how he displayed his lordship over the devil in the book of Job. Job chapter 1, it was the Lord who handed Job over to Satan. Satan could do nothing to Job unless the Lord ordained it. And why did he do so? Why did the Lord ordain for Satan to put Job through such terrible hardship? You read in Job 1, why did the Lord hand Job to Satan? To show that Satan's accusation against Job was completely baseless and empty. Satan insisted, God, Job only loves you because you've given him an easy life. Take all that stuff away and he will curse you. And the Lord's reply to Satan, to paraphrase, then go ahead and make his life miserable. Take it all away. Then you will see that Job is my servant and that he fears me. So even there in that shadowy encounter, Jesus Christ displayed his authority over all evil spiritual forces for his glory and for the good of those in union with him. We've seen how in Christ's, we've seen Christ's headship also in Colossians. It has a deeper, more intimate sense than what we see here in chapter 2, verse 10. Back in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 18, in the middle of that Christ hymn, where Paul confesses, he is the head of the body, the church. Now, when you compare these passages, chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see that Christ is head over the church, and he is head of all rule and authority, all evil spiritual forces. He has authority over both. He orders the life and destiny of both for his glory, but he displays his headship over both in different ways. Let's contrast that. How does Jesus Christ display his headship over the church differently from his headship over his enemies? Christ is head over his church as her savior. He is head over all evil spiritual forces as judge. Christ's headship over his church is redeeming. His headship over evil spiritual forces is defeating. Notice what Paul says about the church in 118. The church is Christ's, you see it there, his body. Nowhere does the Bible say that evil spiritual forces, that, that his enemies are his body. But the church is. This points up how Christ's headship over his church is an intimate headship of redeeming love and covenant communion. In the way that the first Adam was head of all created things, but was the head of his wife Eve in a special way, saying about Eve alone, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So likewise, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is exalted head of all creation, even over demonic wickedness, but his special 
intimate, redeeming headship is reserved in marital jealousy and fidelity for his blood-bought bride, the church, whom he nourishes and cherishes, whom he will bring into his heavenly courts at his marriage feast, that we may enjoy his victory over all his and our enemies. Christ is head over both his church and head over his enemies. But do you see how he manifests that in radically different ways? Christ's church is his beloved body. All evil spiritual forces are his enemies. Christ embraces his church and he stomps on his enemies. Christ reveals his face to his church and he subjects all his enemies under his feet. That is made even clearer later on in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, (laughs) nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, do you notice here a progression from chapter 1 through these couple instances in chapter 2 of how Christ displays his headship over the evil spiritual forces? He created them, he is head over them, and finally he disarms them. It it comes to its high point here in chapter 2, 15, when Jesus Christ disarms and shames his enemies over whom he is head. He has taken away all accusing power from Satan and all of his host. The evil one has nothing to accuse you of, believer, in God's court of law, because your record of debt has been nailed to the cross. Your record of debt remains on the cross, but Jesus Christ has come out of the tomb and now reigns in heaven, having defeated all his and our enemies. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 1, verses 20 and following, speaking of Christ raised and enthroned in heaven, how he is far above all rule and authority, same thing we see in Colossians 2, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this Savior no longer lives in weakness, subject to death. As raised from the dead, he has defeated the one who has the power of death, the devil. All powers, visible or invisible, good or evil, are no match for his otherworldly resurrection power. As Christ sits at the right hand of God in heaven at this moment, God's promise has been fulfilled in him. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, heavenly Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so even though Christ's enemies do wreak havoc in this life, they are still ruled by the risen and ascended Christ. Even though these enemies are powerful, 
They are under the resurrection power and reign of King Jesus. Think of the complete impossibility of being taken from Christ as Paul unpacks that glorious reality in Romans 8, 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, rulers, same word in Colossians 2.10, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you sure about this, Paul? That is a lot of scary things. Death won't separate us from Christ. Rulers won't separate us from Christ. Nothing in all creation, not even the devil himself, not even my own sin, my own remaining corruption. Yes, dear believer, it is true. None of these things Paul mentions, nothing you can think of, nothing can separate you from Christ or Christ from you. But think why. Why, as as we've seen it from Colossians 2 in particular, why is it that nothing in all creation can separate you from Christ, believer? Because in part, all rule and authority belong to him. He calls the shots. Everything in all creation is far beneath him. Nothing in all creation poses any threat to him or to those united to him whatsoever. As we'll see later on, he has disarmed those enemies. There is nothing he's left undone. He is the all-sufficient, self-sufficient Savior for time and for eternity. And as the Colossians were especially tempted to do, to supplement, to add to Christ, do you see Christian afresh how there is nothing to add to him? He's done it all. So draw from his inexhaustible fullness. Herman Ritterboss gives good counsel here. The view of Christ's all-embracing power is on the one hand to keep the church from being overawed by any other power, as though it did not possess in Christ everything necessary for its perfecting, and on the other hand to urge it on to seek its fullness in the fullness of its head. This fullness and all-sufficiency of Christ are to bring it to maturity, to make it draw from him all that is necessary for its growth, so that in its faith and knowledge of Christ, it will not bog down along the way, will not be moved and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and by the craftiness of human error, but will be firmly rooted and grounded. How often are we tempted to add to Christ in subtle ways? Perhaps you affirm that only Christ can save, but do you turn to self-help? motivation, therapy. Perhaps you affirm that Christ is king, but do you pay more attention to the affairs of earthly rulers instead of to his affairs? Don't miss out on all that Christ is and that all that Christ is for his body, the church. In a world filled with all sorts of distractions and threats, how glorious to be filled with the fullness of grace in Jesus Christ, the head of all rule and authority. As we close, let Spurgeon show you how to drink more deeply of Christ. 
All the attributes of Christ as God and man are at our disposal. All the fullness of the Godhead, whatever that marvelous term may comprehend, is ours to make us complete. He cannot endow us with the attributes of deity, but he has done all that can be done, for he has made even his divine power and Godhead subservient to our salvation. His omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, and infallibility are all combined for our defense. Arise, believer, and behold the Lord Jesus yoking the whole of his divine Godhead to the chariot of salvation. How vast his grace, how firm his faithfulness, how unswerving his immutability, how infinite his power, how limitless his knowledge. All these are by the Lord Jesus made the pillars of the temple of salvation. And all, without diminution of their infinity, are covenanted to us as our perpetual inheritance. The fathomless love of the Savior's heart is every drop of it ours. Every sinew in the arm of might, every jewel in the crown of majesty, the immensity of divine knowledge, and the sternness of divine justice, all are ours and shall be employed for us. The whole of Christ in his adorable character as the Son of God, and I will add in his death and resurrection, is by himself made over to us most richly to enjoy. His wisdom is our direction, his knowledge our instruction, his power our protection, his justice our surety, his love our comfort, his mercy our solace, and his immutability our trust. He makes no reserve, but opens the recesses of the mount of God and bids us dig in its mines for the hidden treasures. All, all, all are yours, says he. Be ye satisfied with favor and full of the goodness of the Lord. Oh, how sweet thus to behold Jesus and to call upon him with a certain confidence that in seeking the interposition of his love and power, we are but asking for that which he has already faithfully promised and what is already ours in him. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word.